Okay. Welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, it is my distinct honor uh, to be here with uh, Nicholas Maxwell, uh, a longtime philosopher with an enormously passionate vision. Uh, goes back to at least 1984 and articulating how the Academy has it wrong, uh, how we need to ground our inquiry in wisdom uh, rather than focus on knowledge. Um, when I first encountered Nick's work, uh, I was genuinely moved. I love the idea of a wisdom orientation. I see that as absolutely essential in the Academy. Uh, I always felt from my psychological into philosophical side that that is something that's deeply needed and missing. And um, he's been uh, making a clarion call for us to pay attention to uh, for a very, very long time with a lot of depth and richness. Uh, Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted so, to be here. It's, it's a real honor to, to talk with you about your vision. Uh, I, I became a, he has an active listserv uh, called Friends of Wisdom. Uh, and I like to think of myself as a friend of wisdom. So I, I appreciate that. He's recently written, of course, he's very prolific, written lots of different books, recently written a number of books that we'll touch in. Uh, Nick, can we just start with your, let's start with sort of the basic uh, position that you encountered and discovered, how to ground our rationality and inquiry, as opposed to, you know, the critique, relative to the critique that you offer and the way our um, current academic institutions are set up. Yes. Um, well, in a way, uh, my, my fundamental concern is with reason rather than with uh, wisdom. Um, wisdom kind of emerges out of uh, a more basic concern with reason. Mm. Um, shall I give a, a sort of his, my own historical account of how, how it all developed? I love that, yeah. I, I was doing philosophy at Manchester University, and I was okay. appalled the triviality of analytic philosophy. It seemed, I thought of philosophy as, as struggling with the fundamental questions that, that, that face us about uh, the meaning of life, the nature of the universe, how we fit into the universe. And, and to, to, to dwindle that to a discussion of the meaning of words seemed to utterly trivialize mm. philosophy. Even... In fact, I came to call it anti-philosophy. <laughs> and then I discovered this philosopher at the London School of Economics down in London, Karl Popper. Yeah. And I was immensely impressed mm. um, and arranged to, when I was doing my MA, I arranged to uh, become an occasional student at the mm. LSE. Okay. And I attended Popper's seminar. Mm. And I was immensely impressed. Mm. Um, and I had been myself thinking along somewhat similar lines, mm -hmm. but uh, Popper had spelled it all out with such clarity and such mm. force. And uh, he, it seemed to me he was doing everything that analytic philosophy was not doing, namely uh, saying really original and important things about fundamental problems. Um, both impressed with the logic of scientific discovery, um, conjectures and refutations, mm -hmm. uh, really about philosophy, and um, especially by the open society and its mm. enemies, seemed to me to be tackling an absolutely fundamental problem, namely the problem of how we can achieve 
civilization ah. uh, being from a kind of early tribal society to right. the open society or mm. society that tolerates diversity mm. of views. Um, uh, and, um, and, and the difficulties of that, and the difficulties right. that we've encountered over history. Um, I, Popper, the, Popper's fundamental idea uh, when it comes to science, uh, as I expect lots of people know, is that we can't verify theories, um, but we can falsify them. The classic Popper falsification criteria. Yes. <laughs> um, and that can account for scientific progress. Mm. That what we need, how, how we proceed in science is to put forward falsifiable, empirically falsifiable conjectures, and then try to falsify them by drawing out consequences and checking them up against uh, observation and experiment. And then when we do find a clash between what the theory says and what actually the natural world says, and we know that our theory is wrong, we then are forced to try and think up something better, right. which is going to predict everything that the old theory successfully predicted, not be falsified by the new phenomena that falsifies the old theory and predicts new phenomena as well. And then Beautiful. we do the same again and we struggle to falsify this new theory and so it proceeds. Right. Um, and, uh, and then Popper generalized this to a notion of rationality, which he called mm. critical rationalism. Mm -hmm. That what goes on in science, according to Popper, is a special case of something that goes on more generally, where we mm. uh, try to improve our ideas, our attempted solutions to our problems, by criticizing uh, our attempted solutions, mm -hmm. finding flaws, finding defects, and then, as a result, thinking of something better. So mm. that we can make progress uh, in areas of, of human life that uh, are not... Uh, don't involve the pursuit of knowledge and aren't mm -hmm. scientific. Mm -hmm. We can be rational in the sense of critically rational. We can mm. be imaginative in thinking up possible solutions to our problems mm -hmm. and then uh, examine these ideas, these policies, uh, these possible solutions critically. Mm. And the, the essence for Popper of reason is to be critical. Criticality. Essentially, and Popper put it like this himself, a method of trial and error. Science mm. is just a very special case of this, where mm -hmm. criticism takes the very harsh form of empirical refutation. Mm -hmm. um, and all this, and then he applies this notion of critical rationalism to mm -hmm. the problems of moving out of a closed tribal society. Mm -hmm. uh, Popper has a rather grim, perhaps an over-grim view of what tribal society mm. inevitably consisted in, but leave yeah. that on one side. Um, to the open society, where mm. there are plurality of ideas and views and values. Mm -hmm. And so where criticism becomes possible because of this diversity. Mm -hmm. Actually, a diversity of views and values is, is, is really essential for, mm. to, for the critical method to begin to operate. So right. for Popper, the open society, uh, uh, it's possible the rational society. The rational oh. society, the society, 
dominated by rules of reason. Right. It's rather where there is where we can all learn mm. through connecting our ideas to, to criticism. Right. Um, hmm. And all this seemed to me to be terrific and wonderful and vastly more significant and interesting than Oxford philosophy, as it ah. tended to be called in those days, the philosophy of Wittgenstein and Gilbert Ryle. And now, now did, did this lead, this, uh, this Popper's idea, I know one of the things that I've you know, studied and analyzed in Popper is his three worlds view, um, his three worlds lecture. Uh, does, is this worldview emerging for him in relationship to the critical rationality and his attempt then? Do, yeah. And do you have opinions about that particular aspect of his thinking? I thought it was a terrible mistake. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. I think Popper, towards the end of his life, began to deteriorate a bit. It really, really, mm. it's the first four, his first four books that, that were okay. my real okay. significance. Not, not that there aren't good things in some of the later books, but okay. that's where... I just wanted to get your take. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so, as a... As a good follower of Popper, I began to do what Popper himself hated, namely subject Karl Popper to criticism. <laughs> In fact, I had a, a kind of session. I gave a talk at his seminars, and and, um, and in a strange way, I you know sometimes people would be reduced to tears by the, the ferocious. Popperian criticism that they encountered. Every sentence, every half sentence would be devastatingly slaughtered by, with Popper's onslaught. Mm. Um, instead of kind of uh, trying to rebut all this, I, I just let it kind of flow. Perrin huh. Watkins, who is the uh, um, other professor in the philosophy department, um, decided to subject every sentence I uttered to furious debate about what it was that I'd actually said until they realized how absurd this was and they turned to me and the next sentence, they clarified it. So then I got to the next sentence and then Popper would explode in outrage and Watkins would say, no, Carl, that's not what Maxwell is saying at all. And so they would go on arguing with And then they realized this is ludicrous and they turned mm. to me. So then I uttered the next sentence of my talk and then the same thing happened again. And so we proceeded. And then finally, um, I was talking about uh, the problem that really concerned me then, how the, the human world fits into the physical universe. Yes. And I said, um, the mind is the brain, uh, which I meant with qualifications, but I didn't have a chance to say what the qualifications were because Popper again exploded and said, what kind of um, conjecture is that? And I said, it's a bold conjecture. Mm -hmm. Well, that was one Popper's classic phrases, the whole mm. seminar, everyone, the whole audience roared in laughter. Popper was reduced to muttering, oh, it's not so bold or that. <laughs> um, anyway, and, and Popper was so furious with me mm. um, that a week or two later, he, he gave a talk at his own seminar um, to rebut me. Mm. Um, and um, huh. this was absolutely unprecedented. No one's ever done that. Never, it's never done that before in response to anyone. In fact, another of the professors, Imre Lakatosh, said to me, this is a great honor to you, Nicholas. <laughs> yes, I've been rebutted by Popper. Or tempted. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Okay. Enough, enough of, of, uh, that, that, that helps set the stage. I appreciate that background. Um, 
So I began to look critically at Popper's uh, philosophy of science because it had been subjected to criticism by various people. And I wasn't really convinced that the criticism was, was amounted to much. Um, but then there began to dawn on me that there was actually a very serious flaw. And it can be put like this, that in physics, the, the fundamental uh, natural science, mm -hmm. um, theoretical physicists only ever uh, take seriously and accept, certainly accept, theories that are unified. Mm. A theory, in order to be acceptable, must have sufficient empirical success. It must right. predict, successfully predict sufficiently a range of phenomena. But it must also be unified in the sense that it is not made up of a sort of patchwork quilt of different laws. You can't have mm -hmm. a theory that says one set of laws for these phenomena over here, another set of laws for these phenomena over here. The same laws have to operate throughout the whole range of phenomena that the theory applies to. Right. But you can always concoct rivals, especially doctored to be to fit the facts even better. Mm. They inevitably horribly disunified. There are sort of hodgepodge right. of different laws and postulates that are, are much better. Uh, on empirical grounds, mm. according to Popper's own methodology, but mm. which never get considered for a moment. And Popper doesn't really have a reply to that. Interesting. He does talk about simplicity, um, mm. but in the end, uh, the key notion of simplicity is that, that the more empirical content a theory has, mm -hmm. the simpler it is. Right. But you can always increase the empirical content of theory by adding on independently testable postulates, right. um, but vastly decrease the, uh, the unity of the theory and so make it into something that no physicist in his right mind would ever take seriously for a moment. Right. So this devastating uh, objection um, mm. to, to Popper's whole uh, uh, philosophy, hmm. Can we stay on unified for just a sec there? So are you, um, the word sort of coherence and comprehensiveness or comprehensibility or internal logic, can you give us a little bit more uh, framing on what you mean by that concept of what, of the, it has to be unified, unified and networked into other ideas that afford comprehensibility? Yes. Well, uh, can, one can put it like this, um, the, the, the right, this was a problem. What does it mean to say a theory is unified? That uh, even Einstein recognized and admitted he didn't know how to solve. So it's, and, and many other philosophers of science have been thinking, and I think scientists and physicists as well have been thinking about this problem. Well, I've solved it. Um, and it's really quite straightforward. And the key thing to really appreciate is, well, first of all, uh, the, why, why it's a problem is because a theory can be formulated in many different ways. Okay. A very complicated theory, a very apparently disunified theory, could always be reformulated so that it becomes apparently beautifully simple and unified, and mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. And it's this sort of malleability of theory, the fact that you can change its apparent whole, whole structure that has baffled people. Mm. Um, 
But the first crucial thing to appreciate is that it's that unity is not about the, 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 the axiomatic structure of a theory or its formulation or anything like that. It's about what the theory asserts about the world. Mm. That's the crucial thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The next crucial thing is to appreciate that the problem is not really what is unity. The proper problem to tackle is what is disunity. Okay. And so let us suppose we have a theory mm -hmm. that is disunified. Mm -hmm. um, it divides up into let us say, 10 parts. Okay. Um, uh, and these different parts apply to different ranges of phenomena. Mm -hmm. 10 domains. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is such that within any one domain, the theory is unified. That is, throughout okay. the range of phenomena uh, in that the, the theory applies to within that mm -hmm. domain, the theory asserts the same thing, the same laws apply. Mm. different from what is asserted in all the other domains. Okay. Mm -hmm. Each domain is unified, but there are these 10 distinct domains. Distinct, right. Mm -hmm. We can say the disunity of this theory is N equals 10. Gotcha. What do we want for unity? N equals 1. Nice. I love that. It's a wonderful example. It's Good. actually quite straightforward. You don't have to talk about the rather vague terms of your coherence, cohesiveness, or anything like that. It's actually really quite straightforward. There are more, actually, more, I can... more complications which I deal with uh, and solve and explore in a book called Understanding Scientific Progress, which mm. was published in 2017. Um, but I don't think they need concern us here because they're just questions about. Well, actually, I, I, I'll pause you just to, just because that's a wonderful articulation of what I encountered in the field of psychology. At some point, we could possibly discuss um, yeah. this: uh, that what you have in psychology is essentially the multiplicity of schools of thought, um, and whether they are properly called as paradigms or theories or whatever. But they're definitely a huge number uh, of different frames of understanding. Uh, that are then that then are incommensurate. They may have some degree of coherence within themselves, but uh, across the spectrum of understanding, they create an N of whatever uh, different schools. So at least there so sounds to be some parallels in what I intuitively encountered in psychology and my philosophical problem with all the multiplicity of different paradigms may relate uh, to some of what you're saying here. It's no point like that because. Um, something like the standard model uh -huh. in, in modern physics, which is the uh, quantum field theory of, course. of fundamental particles and fields and forces between them. Yep. Um, this, this has a, a certain sort of structure and coherence, but yep. it is unified. There are three or possibly two or two and a half forces uh, electromagnetism, the strong force and the weak force. Mm -hmm. um, lots of different particles with different properties. Um, okay. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy the requirements for unity. I mean, in fact, it's disunified mm. to N equals 27. So it's okay. kind of... With the renormalizing. Okay. It's mm -hmm. unified. It's not... Mm. And, and, Physicists themselves recognize this. Well, certainly it's got, yes, it's got a multiplicity of different parts. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's not like general relativity that is really is a unified theory, or even Newton's Newtonian theory. Yep. Um, okay. So, um, so, so Popper rather rather disgracefully um, in one of his books, in response to the problem I just mentioned about mm -hmm. um, how can you justify accepting unified theories when there are these infinitely many disunified rivals that are empirically more successful that satisfy Popper's requirements for being accepted. Better. And Popper just says um, in one place, uh, we should leave it to the, to the theorists to struggle for their theory. Well, okay. <laughs> that isn't really adequate. And Popper would have actually deplored a scientist saying that his theory hasn't really been refuted by a refutation, by an mm. empirical well, I think what I just indicated is a pretty decisive reputation of Karl Popper's philosophy of science. And okay. Somewhat disreputable not to recognize this. So, but the implications are, are really substantial. Mm. Because what it really means is that, uh, and this is really the key argument of, of my, my departure from Popper's philosophy, okay. is that... Physics, in persistently only accepting unified theories and um, they, not even considering, not just rejecting, but not even considering um, the, an infinity that could be concocted of, of disunified rivals that are even uh, empirically more successful in the sense that they fit the facts even better, uh, which sort of arbitrarily say, um, in 10 years' time, the laws of nature will suddenly abruptly change and become something sure. very different. And you can do this in endlessly many ways. Uh, doubtless in the future, these theories will get refuted, but up till now, they can be concocted to, be, to fit the facts even better than the theories we accept. The fact that we only ever accept more or less unified theories, like Newtonian theory, general relativity, classical electromagnetism, quantum theory, even the standard model, um, means that the whole enterprise of physics is making this big assumption about the world, that there is some kind of underlying unity in nature. And okay. that's why, in other words, there are these two requirements. The theory right. has empirical success and compatibility with this idea of underlying unity. Can you speak just a bit to then if the standard model is, you know, a, a foundation uh, and yet at the same time it is um, it is made up, as you said, sort of potentially could be conceived of as made up of a multiplicity of different, you know, put together 27 different parts. And yet at the same time, as a core framework, many physicists would say, oh, the standard model, although it's not complete and not uh, effective, but does afford a core foundation. That and general relativity are the twin pillars to understand the material world. So can you speak just a little bit to how you see the core theory, even though it's not unified? Is it that they're, they're, the no, it's not complete and the press would be to condense it to a more unified and it's got enough pieces relative to what it does so that it satisfies the unified kind of criteria that you're giving there or that it at least makes up of the parts that get put together. I'm a little, I just need a little clarification yeah. on how you frame them. There are some unifying aspects. There's yep. um, something called gauge invariance. Sure. Gauge. 
and the the different components of the theory all satisfy that. Right, and certainly there's a big push once they had the quantum frame for electromagnetism, and then they wanted to put it into the um, you know strong and weak force to create chromodynamics, quantum chromo, uh, and etc. Um, so I'm familiar with the desire, and I can then see the desire to yoke stuff together. I just wanted. Well, to what I'm right. saying is that it's not as disunified as you might have got the impression that it is. Okay. It had there some unifying features about it. Perfect. But, it, okay. but, it, but also what you have to appreciate is that just as a physical theory may run into empirical difficulties and, the, and on the face of it be refuted, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is refuted. It should be rejected because it may be that the experimental work hasn't been done properly. If we do the experiments more carefully, we may change our minds about what the result is. Um, there, are, there are these whole, whole range of problems uh, about the predictions of the theory and how they fit in with, with the experiments we get. That's what an awful lot of physics is all about. Absolutely. Um, so, so, there are, so there are problems and difficulties at the empirical level. So the fact that there are problems and difficulties at the theoretical level, at the level of the search for the underlying unity, it, what that really is, is an indication that we haven't got there yet. Yep. But the underlying unity okay. that we're seeking, we're, we're some way away from it still because our theories don't fit together. General relativity doesn't fit together with, um, with the standard model. We don't know what dark matter is. We don't know what dark energy is. There are these more, we only know about sort of 5% of the- right. and, now the and now the muon seems to be wobbling in weird ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, you know, maybe string theory is the answer, but that hasn't come. Now that, that's had a couple of strikes lately, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, so, so that's really the answer to you. That, um, okay, thank you. There, there are these these problems, both empirical problems and unity problems, and those are the problems that physicists need to be working on in order to try to develop, you know, a better theory, better gotcha. theories. Um, so. Once uh, one, I mean, the really important point uh, is that this assumption um, of underlying unity uh, is just a conjecture. It's not something we know to be true. Um, and if we look at the history of physics, we see that physics has at different stages uh, put forward, uh, accepted um, conjectures as to what kind of metaphysical, that is untestable um, conjectures as to what kind of underlying unity it is, the universe is, or what kind of entities the universe is made up of. Um, and we changed our mi minds a number of times. In other words, we've got it wrong. We recognize we've got it wrong. We Once we thought in the 17th century that it was made up of hard little particles that only for puzzles that only interacted by contact. That gave way to the idea that it's made up of point particles that have mass and interact by means of forces at a distance. That gave way to the idea that there's a unified field, the kind of idea that Faraday held and Einstein held. Sure. That gave way to the idea that it's some, there's some sort of quantum particles, um, whatever they might be, um, and that gave way to the idea that perhaps it's a sort of uh, foaming quantum structure of, of space or space-time 
And that gave way to the idea that perhaps it's made up of little quantum strings um, that uh, interact in stringy sort of ways. Um, and probably that's wrong as well. So sure. we, we've again and again, we've got things wrong. Uh, we're almost bound to get it wrong because here, this is a conjecture about the ultimate nature of the universe, that of which we are most ignorant. So, we, so the really important point to make is, it's really important that we make this conjecture that is very influential because it influences what kind of new theories we seek to develop and what theories we accept and reject. Um, and it's almost bound to be false for the reasons that I've indicated. So we need to make it explicit so that we can try it, do pop, do pop our rationality. Ah, gotcha. Criticize it, think up alternatives, try and assess their relative merits, crit critically assess their relative merits and in an attempt to try to improve the conjecture that we actually accept. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. And there's still a problem, how do we do this? And so what I have done is to say, well, we, what we can do that would facilitate the, uh, our capacity to improve the assumption we make, this very weak point in science, in a way, mm. as we speak, is to represent the assumption in the form of a hierarchy of assumptions. Okay. Um, okay. As we go up the hierarchy, the assumptions get less and less substantial. They mm. say, they assert less and less, um, and so become more likely to be true because the less we say, the more likely we are to be correct. If we don't say anything at all, um, we're bound to be correct. If you say <laughs> it's either raining or it isn't raining, um, you've really covered your back entirely. You're never going to be false. Um, and then as we come down the hierarchy, the right. assumptions get more substantial and at some point become false. Mm. Um, so at the top, we have the assumption the universe is such that we can acquire some knowledge of our local circumstances sufficient to make life possible. Well, okay. if that's false, we've had it whatever we assume. <laughs> so we're never going to endanger science or indeed life by making that assumption. That's not an assumption we're ever going to want to reject, even though we have no reason to suppose that it's true. It may be that suddenly and abruptly, everything will change and life will become is mm. possible for all we know. Right. Next assumption is a bit more substantial, that okay. the universe okay. is such that we can acquire, that we can, we, we can make a guess about it, which enables us to improve our methods for improving knowledge. In other words, the universe is such that we can learn how to learn. Okay. We can start to do science better. Mm. Uh, progressively improve our ideas, mm -hmm. um, which I call meta-knowability. It's okay. a sort of version of Einstein's idea that the universe isn't malicious. Mm. If we seem mm. to be making progress, we probably are making progress. It isn't okay. leading, up a, leading us up a blind alley. <laughs> right, creating breadcrumbs into the wrong direction. <laughs> into chaos. Um, and then the next assumption is that the universe is comprehensible in some way. Okay. That is, there is an explanation, one kind of explanation for everything. 
possibly uh, it's God who's in charge and he's the explanation for everything that happens, he or she. Um, it might be that there's a kind of cosmic purpose and everything is happening as it does. Everything is to be explained and understood as helping to achieve this ultimate cosmic end. Um, it could be um, that, there's, that there's some sort of computer program or something like a computer program which specifies how things happen. Mm. Or it could be that there's a unified pattern of physical law inherent in all phenomena. Okay. And that's the explanation. Um, mm. so, uh, so, the, so the, but nevertheless, the idea is there is some such okay. uh, mm -hmm. thesis that, which says everything can be explained and understood in this specific kind of right. way. Right. With a, a variety of possibilities. And the next assumption down is the assumption that it's physically comprehensible, mm. which one might call physicalism. The universe okay. is physically comprehensible. Uh -huh. the, the, the universe is such that there is a yet to be discovered, unified, perfectly unified theory of all phenomena um, that is true. Uh -huh. And then the next assumption is our best bet at all what kind of theory this is. At present, it will probably be string theory. And then we have our current theories, okay. fundamental theories, general relativity and the standard model. And mm. then we have uh, uh, experimental results. Okay. So that's the sort of picture. And okay. the idea is that we need to concentrate uh, our criticism uh, uh, most likely to be needed, namely, at the, at the base of, of this pyramid, this mm -hmm. hierarchy, uh, we can be pretty confident that we're not going to change our ideas high up in the hierarchy. Okay. So that is a kind of um, restriction of mm -hmm. what can be taken seriously lower down. And then we have these two constraints, namely what's higher up, constraining from above, and then right. our theories, our best theories, constrain what can be accepted from below. And the idea is to try and uh, choose a metaphysical assumption which seems best to promote the progress of, of physics. Okay. So, in other words, according to this view, which I call amorgen empiricism, there's yep. a kind of yep. positive feedback becomes possible between improving our theoretical knowledge in physics and improving our, our, our metaphysical ideas, and so our methods. So there's a kind of positive feedback between improving knowledge and improving knowledge about how to improve knowledge. Mm. Mm -hmm. As we, as science proceeds and gets a better understanding of what kind of universe we're in, we adapt the nature of science to fit what we have discovered. And that does actually go on in physics, because the kind of constraints physicists consider non-empirical constraints on acceptable theories that physicists think take seriously today. They're very different from the ones that Newton would have taken seriously. So things have evolved since totally. Newton in terms of the kind of universe we think we're in. Um, but there is, you know, this common feature right. to it all. Right. Um, so, so this is uh, the new conception of science that I've been arguing for since well, I first published a paper on it called um, The Rationality of Scientific Discovery, deliberately uh, ge gesturing towards 
Poppers. Magic sounds like it. <laughs> when was that? When was that published? 1974. Okay. In, in the world's leading philosophy of science journal, the philosophy of science. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I've published a whole lot of papers and books. Indeed you have. You've been very prolific. <laughs> in 1998, I published a book called The Comprehensibility of the Universe that spelled mm. it all out. Um, another one called Is Science Neurotic? Well, in a sense it is, because scientists today still cling to the idea that the basic aim of truth is not uh, to discover how the universe is physically comprehensible, and, and hence this highly problematic aim that has to be improved as we proceed, they hold that the basic aim is truth, nothing being yeah. presupposed about the truth, and the basic method is to select theories solely with respect to empirical success and failure. Right. That's one of the things I want to it's, highlight that I really agree with in terms of, well, there are several things I agree with. Uh, so, so but that the, in the, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say that, finish that. Um, okay, please. So, yeah. So what has happened is that physics specifically and science more generally, has repressed this problematic aim oh. of trying to discover in what way the universe is physically comprehensible, precisely because it's so problematic, because oh. it means we're making this assumption, uh, but we have no justification for it. Um, so it's repressed and replaced with this apparently unproblematic aim of truth, nothing being presupposed about the truth. Well, that's the typical pattern of, of neurosis, where you have a problem academic. I know a little bit about that. <laughs> I love my mother. I hate my father. I'm going to kill him. But he's big, and I love him as well, so I can't. So I, I have to rep- repress the unjustifiable aspects of the self? I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> so, um, so, but this is a kind of methodological version of, of mm-hmm. sort of Freudian and Jungian ideas. Um, uh, uh, and... And so science is what I call methodological, it suffers from what I call methodological neurosis. That is it, this, which is very likely to, to befall any aim-pursuing endeavor, whether it's a person or, or a social movement or an institution that has problematic aims. Precisely because the aims are problematic, they're repressed and replaced by ostensibly unproblematic aims. But then the more rashly you pursue your declared aim, the worse off you are from achieving your real aim. So it leads to the experience of reason being actually very unhelpful. The more rational you are, the worse off you are if you, from the point of view, achieving your real aim. So it's really important not to suffer from rationalistic neurosis, but science does. Uh, As I spelled out in a book, uh, published in 2004 called um, Is Science Neurotic? Mm. Um, and but I really, I think I really brought all this to a conclusion in 2017. Okay. Understanding Scientific Progress, mm. which is essentially um, what I did there was to set out to, to solve this absolutely basic problem in the philosophy of science, namely the okay. problem of action, the problem that David Hume, I discovered. Um, Did you say the problem of induction? Did you say the problem? Okay. How how can we make sense of having scientific knowledge if it's impossible to verify theories? Because we can't verify them for the future till we get there. 
So okay. how, what cases can we possibly have? And or, as I would elaborate it, there will always be the, this infinity of empirically more successful theories, disunified rivals to the theories we accept. We never take them for granted, never consider them for a moment. So I think what I did in that book was really to um, solve that problem hmm. within the framework of amorphic empiricism. And do you want to say a little bit about that? Are you going to say a little bit about how you solved the induction problem? Well, it, it, essentially, it's it, what it involves is saying the, the top two assumptions uh, that, that the assumption that we can um, acquire the universe is such that we can continue to acquire knowledge of our local circumstances sufficient to make life possible. Okay. The, the justification for accepting that is we have nothing to lose. Um, hmm. it, 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 we, 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 we inevitably, we're going to make this assumption. So we might as well be honest about it and say, yes, we're making it, even though we have no justification for its truth. And then the next one, that we can um, improve our methods, we can learn how to learn, it's, um, uh, well, it, it, it's a little bit more elaborate, but essentially the argument is that this, this has, is so potentially fruitful an assumption to make, and it's very unlikely to lead us astray. So we should adopt such, a, such assumption. And then the next question about comprehensibility is, well, it complies with this idea. The, if, if we can have the idea that the universe is comprehensible in some way, then it becomes possible that by discovering which uh, explanatory, what kind of explanatory theories are, are meet with empirical success, mm -hmm. we, can, we can improve our ideas about the kind of way in which the universe is comprehensible. Mm -hmm. Something which it took humanity a very, very long time to learn, mm -hmm. because until really modern science got going in the 17th century, that we continued, and we still in a way continue to think of nature in personalistic terms, you know, explaining things in terms of intentions or desires, gods being angry, hence thunder. Huh. And that. Um, sure, animistic well, reasoning. Gods are angry with us, rather mm -hmm. than in terms of physical law, which, mm -hmm. which seems sort of dreadfully... Uh, actually neutral. <laughs> Impersonal <laughs> or cold. <laughs> Impersonal. That's it. Impersonal. Uh, whereas our, um, because we're essentially social beings, um, we, we, we live in a world of seeking to explain and understand the actions of others all the time, their motivations, why, what are they up to, you know, who is friends with whom, and all this. And so, no, this, we get to be very good at that because yes. of the social life And so, not, not surprisingly, we sort of project it onto the natural world as well and assume that's the way to understand the natural world. But, but it isn't. It, the, the, and it took us a long time to learn that, it, that that isn't the way to mm. approach nature. And for many people, they still haven't quite cottoned on to that. <laughs> woken but up science, to that, huh? um, Otherwise, and that's what made it science possible. Mm. So, as we go down the hierarchy, uh, at a certain point, the reasons why we accept uh, an assumption is that it's more fruitful empirically, 
than, than rival assumptions. Okay. Mm -hmm. the, the reasons for accepting assumptions become progressively acquire an empirical character. Mm. And, and what I do is justify the mm -hmm. acceptance of mm. the levels of assumptions mm -hmm. uh, progressively. But to get the whole story, you'll have to read Understanding Scientific Progress. Ah. <laughs> Go to the book. <laughs> and there's a sort of companion book to that called In Praise of Natural Philosophy, which was mm. also published in 2017. And really what that's arguing is that what... What Amont in empiricism is doing is putting together again science and philosophy, science, yes. and, science and methodology, um, science and epistemology. Uh, what we really need to be doing is not science, but rather natural philosophy, as it was done in the time of Galileo and Kepler and Newton. Um, I I love that point. I want to pause you on that point for just a sec. I, this is what I was going to say before, the little yellow circle behind me. It's got an M and an E in it, and the M in dialectical relation, and the M is metaphysics and the E is empiricism, and it is the proper you know, metaphysical, physical science uh, relation that natural philosophy appreciated, but natural science broke. Um, you wrote about that in a number of different places, and I just really want to pause, at least for the listeners of my podcast, they know that I care about that. And you've been emphasizing that with brilliance for a long time. So I just wanted to highlight that. The person who destroyed natural philosophy was one of the greatest natural philosophers, namely Isaac Newton. Yeah. If you read the first edition of the Principia, yeah. his great work, where he um, put forward the law of gravitation and the law, uh, laws of motion, Newtonian mechanics, as we call it now, um, and explains the motions of the, the solar system and so on by its means. Um, the, the work begins, uh, or, or some part of it begins, with um, nine hypotheses. Yep. And about five of them are metaphysical hypotheses. Mm -hmm. So it's perfectly clear that this is a great work of natural philosophy, uh, exactly in the tradition of Kepler and Galileo, who also were clear that they held a certain view of nature, namely that it had some kind of simple mathematical structure to it, an early form of what I call physicalism, that the universe is physically comprehensible. But Newton was criticized precisely for making these hypotheses. And Newton was very neurotic and hated criticism. So in the second edition, he obscured all this. Um, some of the hypotheses became phenomena. Um, some of the hypotheses became rules of reasoning. And some of them just disappeared altogether. Hmm. One was sort of smuggled in amongst a whole lot of theorems. Mm -hmm. and it was a bit, bit rather peculiar one anyway. Mm -hmm. And the whole uh, idea that there was a hypothetical conjectural character to his work completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And then even more, Newton went on to say that he had derived his law of gravitation, not, not by means of hypotheses, but by, by induction from right. phenomena. And, and that's the way his natural philosophy should proceed. Mm -hmm. um, it should... Uh, not have uh, hypotheses in it at all. 
Um, so um, once we get, we get neuroticism repressing various realities. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so Newton complete, did a complete cover, completely mm. distorted his earlier work and turned it into, uh, you know, what we would now think of as inductive science or empirical science. And uh, of course, it was the second and third edition of the Principia that people read. And this was the work which influenced um, the Enlightenment mm -hmm. and has come down to us. And uh, the view, the doctrine that, I, that scientists still take for granted, absolutely take for granted, which I call standard empiricism, the idea the basic aim is truth, basic method is selecting theories on the basis of evidence, um, is, is really due, we only accept because of this appalling neurotic uh, cover-up. Um, of Newton. Uh, it, it, it's an absolutely extraordinary story. Um, so, so, there was a moment in my life um, around, I think, about 1972. I, I even know the exact spot where it happened. Okay. I, I, we had a flat in those days in Gray's Inn Road in central London. All right. And I'm stepping off the pavement in a little side road called Northington Street. Okay. And it suddenly occurred to me that I could follow along the path set by Karl Popper. Ah. I travel along a parallel path to his path. What ah. he had done had begun with a conception of science. Uh, it seemed to me far better than rival conceptions, uh -huh. maybe for Asianism, right, and right, generalized right. it to a notion of rationality, critical mm -hmm. rationalism, okay. and then applied it to help solve social, political, moral problems, mm. philosophical problems, and other problems as well. And in other words, it's tremendously fruitful. Mm. And it suddenly dawned on me, I have a much improved conception of science, namely amorted empiricism. This is mm -hmm. much better than others. Account. Popper doesn't solve the problem of induction. He doesn't solve the problem of, of what, what scientific method is. Um, but I do. Mm. And I generalize this notion of amorted empiricism to a notion of amorted rationality. Okay. Whatever we're doing, not just in science, but in all sorts of other human activities, in politics, in industry, in, in the economy, in finance, in agriculture, uh, in the law, um, oh. in, whole, in the media, okay. in a whole range of, of human activities. We have, de in many ways, deeply problematic aims. Oh. Um, we may think that uh, economic pro progress, industrial progress, agricultural uh -huh. progress oh. is nothing but wonderful, and we're uh -huh. all getting wealthier and how marvellous. Oh. But of course, we then discover that actually these apparently unproblematic aims have all sorts of problems associated with them. Ah. To do with the destruction of the natural world, the creation of the climate right. crisis, um, the extinct extinction of species, loss of wildlife. Uh, uh, pollution. Um, I'm sensing you have a you have a feeling that we should a, uh, aim wisely. <laughs> yes, we well. So so uh, in all these diverse human activities, um, 
the games, um, the absolutely vital thing that we need to do is put the, the just generalized notion of, of the progress achieving methods of science, which I call amodid rationality, um, into practice, which facilitates the improvement of our aims in the light of problems that they reveal as we, as we live, as we act, as we proceed. Um, so, the crucial thing to do is to um, represent a problematic aim in the form of a hierarchy of aims. So, as we go up the hierarchy, it doesn't have to be quite as elaborate as that, that I indicated for science, but something okay. along. So that as we go up the hierarchy, we arrive at an aim. We go up only so far as we arrive at an aim that seems unproblematic. Mm. Or it's unproblematic in the sense we all agree at that level. There's no problem. There's no controversy about that aim. But then as we come down the, the, the hierarchy, we encounter more substantial, more specific aims are, for one reason or another, problematic and need to be improved, or there is disagreement and we Beautiful. need to resolve the disagreement, the conflict. Um, so, by, so by embedding amorted rationality into our institutions, into the fabric of social life, into our culture, into our personal lives and our interpersonal lives, there, we, have a, we have a chance of improving our aims and our methods and achieving what is really of value to us without undesirable consequences. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. That's very congruent with my own uh, so, so framing. It, it, it struck me that um, that's what academia ought to be helping us to do, helping humanity to do. Because it is, uh, I mean, you know, ultimately, we're a part of the physical universe. We're a part of this structure of physical laws. There's a kind of ultimate sense in which we're just helplessly <laughs> conforming to the laws of nature. But we are also aim-pursuing entities. We, we oh. assume that it's a part of what it is to be a, a living thing. Um, all living things are aim-pursuing. Um, they have the, at least the Darwinian aims of survival and reproductive success. Totally. We you may need to do, we may need to transform that into uh, not just survival, but survival of value, living life of value. Totally. Um, we, so we, we have this, this difficult, profoundly uh, difficult task of improving our aims and methods as we live. The, why this is so difficult is because evolution isn't about improving aims. It's about improving one's ability to achieve aims, but it's not <laughs> about fundamentally improving aims. The aims are set by, by evolution, namely, as I've said, survival and reproductive success. Um, so this is something really difficult. After all, it involves something that Popper talks about. One of the things that he stresses is the open society has what he calls the strain of civilization. That, that if you live in an open society, there are a plurality of views and ways of living and values. And that's inevitably means that 
doubt is going to be cast on your own views, values, and ways of living, because why should you be right and everyone else be wrong? Um, so it induces doubt and uncertainty. Okay. And, and there are different responses to that. One response is to obliterate all these others and say they're all lunatics. We alone are right. And that's one standard strategy. But the other strategy is to try to learn um, and improve your, your mm. acknowledge doubt and uncertainty and so right. make introduce the possibility of learning. Actually, this goes back to Socrates, yep. who basically said, uh, when, when the oracle said, I'm a wise person, what, what the oracle really meant is, I, I alone recognize that I don't know. Don't know anything, right, or basically, yes. I, I'm, introduces uh, the possibility of learning. If you're going to learn, you have to acknowledge the possibility that you may have something to learn. Mm. Uh, Maybe some inadequacies in what you already mm. know or how you already live. Mm. So, so, absolutely fundamental task for academia, it seemed to me, was going to be to help humanity build into social life, into other institutions besides science, progress-achieving methods, progress-achieving methods that enable us to progressively improve our aims as we are, uh, and so our lives, on ecology with what goes on in science. It's much more difficult to do this in social life than it is in science, for, all, for various obvious reasons. Um, in science, we can employ very clever um, people who are dedicated to the task to do it, and they're well-paid, well-motivated, and if they're wrong, it's not too disastrous. It just means the theory gets falsified. 100% no agree. In life, it's all different. Everyone is involved. Um, motivated people, uh, mad people, drunks, alcoholics, the poor, the old. The it's a messy world out there. Babies, the children, um, the dying, everybody's involved. So, and and uh, we're not all motivated and um, we're not all brilliant and no one is paying us to help us to make progress towards a more civilized world. So the whole thing, and, and furthermore, if we get it wrong, it may actually have all sorts of disastrous consequences. People, bad policy can lead to, to, to dreadful suffering. So, um, so, so if I can, if I can pause you there, Sarah, I just want to. If I pause you there for just a second, it's more difficult to make social progress towards a civilized world than scientific progress towards improved knowledge of the nature of the universe. Totally, we should, but that isn't the reason for not doing it. That's the reason for all the more taking the task very, very seriously. Well, I just wanted to uh, join you in saying this is this. My journey took me basically on a very similar path. Um, so, you know, I'm grounded as a psychotherapist first. Uh, then I want knowledge, scientific knowledge to inform me about the work that I do and then inform me about the work that I what is the ultimate purpose that I'm doing both then at the individual level. And then it expands past my ego, their ego, the context, and then it grows and ultimately, I arrived at sort of what I would call sort of a meta justification uh, that's very aim oriented. Um, and it gets summarized as follows it's be that which enhances dignity and well being with integrity. And that became my particular backdrop, uh, whereby fundamentally dignity is respect and value, well being is 
functioning and fulfillment in a particular way. We can talk about that. Integrity is truth and honor. Uh, and those can kind of represent science and world health and uh, justice and, and, and holding people with beauty and respect. And so those things actually zoomed out and they afforded me a particular macro level aim oriented guided structure as my system evolved. And that's why I have a lot of respect for what you're seeing, because I felt that and I backed into that in a particular way. Yes. Um, I, I suppose I have uh, tended to put more emphasis on love. Mm. Um, as Beautiful. Kind of, yes. Tell me a little bit more about that. I'd love to hear that. Relationships between people, but also love in the sense of loving you know, that a sculptor can love their work or, or totally. a scientist or even a philosopher may. <laughs> love, love of wisdom, philosophia, right? Uh, you know? Einstein rather wonderfully said um, once, um, wrote, um, the three most important things in life, he said, are, in my view, truth, beauty, then the third is the one that I find so moving, and kindness. Mm, and, and I did think, you know, a kinder world would be a, a much more, uh, much better world to live in. I, yeah. I, I totally resonate with kindness and love uh, in relationship to dignity, well-being, integrity. Those are beautiful yeah. sentiments. Um, also, I very, very much like, um, because one of, the, one of the big dilemmas is about, well understood, is the dilemma about, you know, am I entirely for me or am I for, for others? Mm. Or am I selfish or do I take others into account? And there's a wonderful saying of a 12th century rabbi, whose name I forget, who said, who, who formulated in, in the terms of three questions. Mm. Um, if, if, I, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Uh-huh. If I'm for myself alone, what am I? Uh-huh. If not now, when? And uh-huh. um, I, I think that, that puts it very, very well, that uh-huh. we should ultimately take responsibility, in a sense, for ourselves and uh-huh. look after ourselves, even if we were absolutely as altruistic as you could possibly imagine. The the rational thing to do, the good thing to do, would be to be supremely loving towards ourselves, look after ourselves, make sure we, <laughs> we are nourished and, and uh-huh. live well. I, this isn't something that always works for me, but this is what I believe in. And then, and then the next line, if I, I'm for myself alone, what am I? That someone, you know, that, that uh, social psychopath, are horribly lonely because they, 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 you know, other people are just things to manipulate. They just move them around. <laughs> what I, what is life if 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 you're you're not living it with others, um, and and having some of the care for others, and especially of course those you love and are living with, um, but you know others more generally. Um, now, you know, not tomorrow or, or the day after, mm-hmm. but now. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest problems we have is the problem of living in the modern world. Uh, that 
a little bit of us, all of us, should take just a little bit of responsibility for the 7.8 or nearly now 7.9 billion people, other Amen. people Amen. on the planet. And this is an immensely, I mean, this is an un unimaginably impossible thing to do because who are all these people? If you don't know them, they're, they're, they're just complete and utter strangers. But we need to be aware that they too are living on this earth. And in a sense, even more broadly, what about other creatures as well? Mm -hmm. We need concern ourselves with those as well. The well well-being of all living creatures is, is certainly I think, I think this is this is uh, it was certainly a point in my life developing the, the ideas that I've been talking about. It dawned on me with, with a sort of moment of dreadful uh, recognition that, mm. that this actually was uh, uh, developing ideas I was going to have to, to take this seriously for me, for my ah. life, how I lived for the rest of my life. I couldn't just think of it as a philosophy I was advocating. This was something I had to take seriously mm. for my life. So um, how, did you, how did you do that? Did your life change a particular way? Did all of a sudden you start to enact this in a particular way? Um, I, I took it on board as a, a, a real... Uh, feeling of, of responsibility for the state okay. of the world. Mm. Um, of course, in a kind of way, I also thought, as it so happens, the, possibly the most important contribution that I can make is to try to get across the, the, these ideas I've been talking about. Mm. Right. Need fundamental to trying to make progress towards a better world. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let me just finish what I was saying. Yeah, so, please. Sorry. Of, of what I was talking about earlier, about the importance of getting amorative rationality into the fabric of social life, is that we should take social inquiry as having that as its basic job. Uh, it, it, and what that means is that it's quite wrong to think of the social sciences as sciences. They are rather, well, we might think call them social methodologies, because they're taught, for example, economics. It's mm. not a science. It's not a pursuit of knowledge about the economic phenomena, which is what all the textbooks say. Mm -hmm. We should think of it rather, first of all, as helping us to solve our economic problems as aspects of our real life problems of living. But secondly, we should think of it as trying to get into the economy, into the economic aspect of life. Uh, methods, well, aims and methods, uh, amorative rationality, uh, this this um, this methodological structure generalized from the progress achieving methods of science um, that would enable us uh, to progressively improve our economic institutions as we live. In my view, that would involve moving towards a more cooperative way mm. of handling uh, the economic aspects of our life. And we, which is entirely possible. It, in fact, as you probably know, takes place in a, a part of France called Mondragon, where mm. everything is done cooperatively, not mm. just shops and businesses, but schools and, and a university and banks are what? all run 
along cooperative lines, based on cooperative thinkers in Britain on the, in the 19th century. All started up priest in the time of Franco. Um, amazing, in the time of a dictatorship. Um, he was consulted by some, a group of peasants who said, we want to start up this business, but we want to do it in a cooperative way. How should we proceed? And so he read up uh, these 19th century uh, thinkers about cooperative cooperatives and formulated uh, a way of doing this. And they, you know, they set up this business. I think it made uh, fridges. <laughs> so it's quite <laughs> humble. And uh, it was successful. Others copied it. And it, the, the idea spread. And this re in this region of Spain, Mondragon, everything is run cooperatively. Wow. And that seems to me to be, uh, of course, you know, there are limits. <laughs> All the time, do everything corporately. You have to be sane about it. But I think that's the direction in which humanity should be trying to move. Right. As far as uh, you know, our economic arrangements, but of course, the rest of life as well. Um, so, in the end, I came to the conclusion that what all you know, this whole line of argument that I've developed, which mm -hmm was in a kind of way modelled on what Popper had done. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I can see that. An idea about uh, what the progress-achieving methods of science are, and then learn from that, generalise it, and then try and work out what it would be to get into social life, a generalised version of the progress-achieving methods of science, so we can start making real progress towards a genuinely better world, uh, in, in where it really matters, namely in the, in the social world. Mm. And then it began to dawn on me that this really was a very old idea. Mm. Uh, it really goes back to the Enlightenment. Mm. Uh, it struck me that what the Enlightenment was really about was learning from scientific progress, okay. progress okay. in natural philosophy, as they would call it, how to achieve social progress, towards the more enlightened world. Mm. But the problem was that in developing this idea, the Benazoa, especially the French Enlightenment, I think that's where it, this is clearest uh, and, and, and most worked out. Um, but uh, Diderot, Condorcet, and the other philosophers of the French Enlightenment, um, the, in their lives, they did precisely what I've just described. They, they mm. saw to oppose um, mere tradition and mere authority mm. uh, of state and church mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. by mean reason and argument mm. um, and learning from experience. Uh, that was what they were actively seeking to do. Right. Um, and that's the right thing. You know, that's the right thing to do. So we should take the philosophers, all academics should think of the philosophers as our models, mm. uh, that's the that's what an academic should be, a philosopher mm. in the modern <laughs> world. But in developing the idea, they made these terrible blunders. Ah. In order to develop the idea, there are three steps. First of all, you need to get clear about the nature of scientific progress, the progress right. achieving as mm -hmm. Then you need to generalize that so that it becomes potentially fruitfully applicable to any worthwhile 
problematic endeavor, mm. especially endeavors that have problematic aims. And then you need to get it into, into all these problematic endeavors, into all the aspects of social life and into all our other institutions besides science. Mm -hmm. um, and they got all three steps wrong. Mm. They, they got the first step wrong because they, they took Newton too seriously. At least the, the Newton of this second, the second or third edition. <laughs> they got the first edition. They perhaps got it better. Mm. Um, they, um, so they didn't generalize the idea properly. But it was at the third, uh, third step that they made this absolutely disastrous blunder because they thought, and it, in a way, you can understand why they would have thought this, that this was the right thing to do. They thought the thing to do was to develop the social sciences alongside the right. If we're going to make progress, if we're going to make progress towards a, a more enlightened world, hmm. first of all, we have to improve our knowledge about the social world, the human world, and then we can apply this knowledge to helping us to make real social progress. So right. they created the social sciences, yep. sociology, economics, psychology, anthropology, uh, even history was regarded as a science. Um, and the, this then got developed throughout the 19th century by people as diverse as Karl Marx, mm. who led to this idea by um, J.S. Mill, by Max Weber, Durkheim, yeah. others, and then got embedded into academia in, uh -huh. in the late 19th, early 20th century uh -huh. with the creation of disciplines and departments of social uh -huh. science. Yeah. Ridiculous psychology, your social science. Well, all, and so out of this emerged uh -huh. the idea that the proper, the proper intellectual task of the academic enterprise of the university is first of all to acquire knowledge and technology mm -hmm. know, and then apply it to help solve social problems. And this is the proper way, the rational way in which academia can help us make progress towards a better world. But the whole thing is an intellectual disaster <laughs> because it actually is fundamentally missing what needs to be done, namely not to apply reason to improving knowledge of the social world, but to apply reason to the social world itself. So that mm. we can, what we need to do is not improve our knowledge of the social world. What we need to do, do is improve the social world. Beautiful. That's what we need to do. Of course, we need also improve knowledge to get a better understanding of what our problems are and also to assess proposals for, for solutions, for actions. But that's a subsidiary uh, task to the fundamental task, which is helping us to solve rationally, in cooperatively rational ways, I would argue, um, our problems of living, both huh. local and global. Um, so it's really cool. the circumstances that are the disaster for <laughs> academia, the intellectual disaster. I think that's really fascinating. One thing I will say is I, I actually, my analysis of psychology is it actually bridges. Uh, it is not, pro, it's, it's got ha one foot uh, in the natural world uh, and there really should be basic psychology. Um, and then human psychology is absolutely in the 
uh, in the social science camp, but that's not just psychology, but anyway. There are, there are some qualifications. I'm giving you the stock. I love it. Listen, I'm, I'm on board. I just need a, a, a psychology is my thing. So I need, I need all some clarifications about what that is. <laughs> I sort of agree with you. And I even say this in one of my books published in 2012 or 2014 called How Universities Can Help Us Create uh, a good world or a wise world. Um, and in that book, I discuss this issue in, in a little bit more care because the point is that psychology, trying to understand um, people, how, how they work, or the human mind, if you like. Um, That's human well, psychology, but yeah. What's doing it is the brain. So there is a kind of physical structure there, name or biological well, structure. The brain plays a role, totally. <laughs> and, and so there's, there is something that's somewhat, that has a certain analogy to the unified structure of, of theoretical physics and natural science. So I, I sort of agree with you that there is this double aspect to it. Um, however, the main argument stands. I, um, I'm, you I and I... Also, are in agreement on the social inquiry. We should, you know, the, the social sciences should be aim-oriented inquiry in a particular way. Yes. So I, I, yes. I think we're and in agreement there. Concerned with solving problems of living, not problems, not fundamentally problems of knowledge. Mm. And nicely um, said. So then it struck me that what this really means is that the whole enterprise of academia is transformed. Um, the whole relationship between, for example, the natural sciences and social inquiry. Well, social inquiry is first of all transformed from social science to social methodology or social helping us to solve our problems of living in more cooperatively rational ways. Uh, the whole relationship between the natural sciences and social inquiry has changed because instead of natural science being more intellectually, more fundamental than social science, which is how things are within the framework of knowledge inquiry or the present, it's all the other way around. Social inquiry is more fundamental because it's engaged with our fundamental problems, our problems of living. That's where Beautiful. the heart of intellectual inquiry ought to be. And problems of knowledge are in a kind of way secondary, important, even vital, but secondary to Love our it. problems of living. Right. Living life is what ultimately matters, and the pursuit of knowledge is a part of life and certainly matters too, but problems of knowledge are not as fundamental as problems of living. Preach it, wisdom, brother. <laughs> the whole relationship between social inquiry and natural science is transformed, um, and the relationship between academia and social world, the rest of the social world is transformed. Because what? Because we ought to take the view that inquiry at its most fundamental, at its most important, is the inquiry, the thinking that is going on in the social world, influencing our actions. That ultimately is what that, matters. That's the essence of what we're embedded in and care about. Yes. So, so it's so the. To, it, Intellectual inquiry at its most fundamental is the thinking that we're engaged in, in life as we live 
guiding our actions. And the whole point of academia is to help us to improve the thinking that we're engaged in. It's a resource for us to, to use to help us to think better, if you like. Not philosophy. Tell- hey, can philosophy be about that? <laughs> Not just philosophy, but the whole academic enterprise. No, I, well, I, I would argue that really, yeah, the, the doorway or root of philosophy, right, is really the academic enterprise. If it's got an epicenter, at least that's what I would say. If ap- academia's got an epicenter, philosophy is the is the core epicenter. Of, well, well of to me, it's it's um, no, it's okay. No. Hey, the thinking going on in life, and. Um, I want to say something a bit similar to that about philosophy, but let's leave that for the moment. Um, Perfect. Sometimes I, I draw the following analogy, that we really ought to think of, of universities, um, the university, uh, on analogy with, with, a, with sort of with the civil service, that what the civil service is supposed to do in secret for government is mm. what academics ought to be doing in public ah. for people, for ah. humanity. They're okay. there as a resource to help us to uh, work out how to implement our policies, to look critically at our policies and see if these are the ones we do really want to pursue, mm-hmm. to help us to better uh, judge what we ought to be doing with our lives, how we ought to be developing our institutions, uh, our, our social endeavours, and so right. on. It's, it's, it's there as a source. And the, the, the proper function of the university is to siphon up ideas for mm. living, mm. For, for problem solving, um, wherever they may be found, um, and then... Uh, developing them and broadcasting them and making them available to everyone. Sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> Absolutely crucial that it's really important that uh, in order to be able to make a um, contribution to academic thought, um, you don't have to have a, a PhD or even a first degree because mm. it may be that someone without much of an education at all may have hit upon a way of dealing with some really important problem in some local circumstance, which Mm. is far more generally applicable, and others should know about it and learn Mm. from it. Mm. And it becomes a part of the job of the academic to do this, to to help us. So we need to have this idea that we are learning as we live. Mm. And a part of what we're learning is, but only an element is... Uh, learning how to make progress to a more civilized world—that's mm-hmm. an aspect of our lives. Not mm-hmm. that we, you know, it, we shouldn't throw our lives away on that project, or we'll sure be disastrous. But we, but five percent of our lives—I don't—that <laughs> sounds like about what the percentage is. But it should be a bit of what we, what we're concerned about and care about—the um, mm-hmm. the, the future of our world and the future of the planet. Um, and academia is there to help us do that, uh, ideally. And it isn't doing it at all at the moment. I mean, it doesn't mm-hmm. even think of itself in those terms. And I then began to think, well, what this means is that academia has a new aim. 
The aim is to help people realize what is the value in life for themselves mm. and others. Realize meaning both apprehend or experience what is the value and create or make real what is the mm. value. So it has both the sort of uh, inquiry aspect for its own sake, but also the practical aspect of helping us to, to do things in the real world. Um, and um, also um, the knowledge and technological know-how are relevant and uh, needed, but, but not the essential thing. The essential mm. thing is, is this capacity, um, nice. this active endeavor in one's life. Um, but what, what is it? And so I hunted for a word, um, and very, very reluctantly, I, in 1983, when I was writing From Knowledge to Wisdom, or a bit earlier, actually, I decided that probably the term to be used was wisdom. Mm. Um, and so for me, wisdom is just a technical term for um, the capacity, the active endeavor, and the desire to realize what is of value in life for oneself and others. Wisdom mm. includes knowledge and technological know-how, but includes all sorts of other things as well, um, mm. like the capacity to discover what is of value for oneself and for others, sure. the capacity to solve problems of living as you live, uh, and so on. And also another thing that I haven't really said, but should have done a long time ago, is that according to amortive rationality, emotion and desire are not, as traditionally thought, non-rational or even anti-rational, but are vital ingredients of rationality. Torse. Because if we're going to discover what is of value for ourselves, um, of course we have to attend to our emotions, responses to things, and to our desires. And it's also true that not everything that feels good is good, and not yeah, everything right. we desire is desirable. So we need an interplay. And this is what I said in my first book, which is called um, What's Wrong with Science? Towards the People's Rational Science of Delight and Compassion. Um, page five. Um, and this book is available free uh, online. We'll put your uh, links in the show notes there. Um, uh, we need to interconnect the heart and the mind so we can develop heartfelt minds and mindfelt hearts. Oh, that's beautiful. Mind and I think that that for me is, is sort of in a kind of way what wisdom is. It's the the you see, if you put if you put um, emotion and desire into the context of animal life. Um, the, the emotions and the desires that animals feel, are, it, that's, the, that's what keeps them alive. Um, they're, they're intelligent feelings and desires. If a rabbit nibbling grass gets a sudden sniff of fox and feels terror, um, then it should respond to that feeling of terror, because if it doesn't, it will be caught, killed, and eaten. You're so, not going to get any disagreement from me as a clinical psychologist about the integration of so, head and heart so, oriented toward wisdom. So our emotions, so our, our emotional thinking, if you like, 
has built into it this potentiality for intelligence and perceptiveness. But of course, we, we were designed to live in hunting and gathering tribes, in forests, um, in a world utterly different, or in many ways different, from the world we live in today. And totally. so our emotional responses get kind of disaligned, cease to be so potentially become less intelligent, less applicable to the, to the actual world we, we live in. And so we tend to discount them. But so what we need to do is to educate our, our emotional responses and our desires as we live. And emotive rationality is precisely designed to help us do that. That's, right. you know, at a personal level, it's all about that. Um, also, emotive rationality is also a kind of empiricism because it's about learning from experience. But experience means human experience. It means what we enjoy and suffer when mm. we put some policy into practice um, rather than what it means in science, namely observation and experiment. Right. But it is a, nevertheless a kind of empiricism as well. It's a, it's, so what it means is a philosophical ideas, ideas about how to live or even religious ideas become, if within the framework of amorative rationality, they become kind of empirical. Okay. Able to assess in terms of uh, what happens when you put them into practice right. and live them. All right. Well, this, um, th thank you for that really, really powerful tour, Nick. I deeply appreciate your life's passion and your desire for a better world. <laughs> the reasons that you give for it, it absolutely m makes good sense to me. Um, we're definitely getting near the time of wrapping up. Uh, and so if there, are, if there are, I don't know if there are any particular pieces or sometimes I ask guests if they look to the future or what they hope folks take away uh, from the conversation that we had in relation and what the guests wanted to share. So let me give you that opportunity to, um, you know, offer some final future vision thoughts or take home messages for folks that uh, just got a chance to digest your version of reality and vision for how we might be. Um, can I say a word or two about these two books I've just published? Please, absolutely. Yes. Uh, that's a thinking about recently. Um, in last year, I published a book called Our Fundamental Problem, mm. uh, approach, the revolutionary approach to philosophy. And in my view, our fundamental problem is the problem I think I've already indicated. How can our human world, the world as we, that we live in, the world that we experience, how, how can this exist and best flourish embedded as it is in the physical universe? Mm. I think what philosophy ought to be is the activity of keeping alive awareness in the world amongst people, that this is our fundamental problem. Okay. All other problems of science and of thought and of life are more specialized or particular aspects of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Good. It, it, we need to encounter it in, in education, uh, at school and certainly at university. There needs to be in every university a kind of symposium that meets regularly and explores aspects of this problem, mm. approaches to the problem, but also explores the way this problem interacts with the more particular and specialized problems that we're even more concerned with, uh, in both directions, how other problems interact with this problem 
and how this problem interacts with the most particular and specialized problems. What, you know, what are the interactions? Uh, are right, I love that. That's a very nice framing and dialectic. And it would also, if we had this, provide an arena where people, students and staff and bureaucrats, you know, everyone involved in the university, could mm -hmm. discuss problems about what the university ought to be doing in the modern mm -hmm. world. Uh, which doesn't really exist at present. Mm -hmm. uh, the appalling thing is that that universities are so structured that there is really only specialized research. And what I've been talking about, namely the discussion of our fundamental problem, of which all other problems are more particular and specialized aspects, never gets talked about. Right. Or only in a very weird way within <laughs> the Yes, yes. But that, that it's absolutely crucial that this is open to everybody to think right. about, not obsessively all the time, but just now and again, ponder it and think how it interacts with more, the more particular problems that one is concerned with. Um, so, so that's sort of, uh, and I go on to argue that philosophy really ought to be doing that. Yes. And if it's done in this way, I call it critical fundamentalism. And if it was done in this way, it would have all sorts of fruitful consequences for mm sorts of other human endeavors from science to life, um, right. which is hardly true of the kind of uh, stuff that most academic philosophers engage in at present. Mm -hmm. um, and more recently, I, to, just a month or two ago, I published this book called um, The World Crisis and What to Do right. About It, right. Thought and Action. And, and what that's really saying is this, that we have these two fundamental problems of learning before us. Learning about the nature of the universe, and about ourselves and other living things as a part of the universe, mm -hmm. and learning how to become civilized. Mm -hmm. um, we've solved the first problem. We did that in the 17th century when we created modern science. Mm -hmm. we, haven't, we, we haven't learned everything there is to be learned, but of course. we've a, a method of learning. We found a method. Making mm -hmm. astonishing progress in improving our knowledge and understanding of the mm. natural world. But we haven't solved the second problem, the problem of creating civilization. Mm. Uh, look at the world around you. It's clear that we're an awful long way from a civilized world. Um, to solve the first problem without solving the second problem is very, very very dangerous mm. because what it means is what the, solving the first problem does is to give us or some of us enormous power to mm. act even mm. millions or billions of people to act we suddenly uh, modern agriculture becomes possible modern industry becomes possible modern travel becomes possible we all drive billions of us drive cars for example mm. and it's this enormous power to act that has created all our current global problems, mm -hmm. or almost all of them, from the obvious ones like uh, the climate crisis and the destruction of the natural world, the extinction right. of species, horrific extinction of species, uh, pollution. Um, it's, it's led to population growth, which is all a big part of the problem. One billion people in the middle of the 19th century, 7.9 billion today, and no. still growing. Um, it's created the problem of uh, modern warfare, sure. modern weapons, 
the horrific problem of uh, nuclear weapons because um, several occasions in the past, um, she has detected in, incoming missiles and uh, that and the proper procedure would have been to loose off the nuclear weapons so that could, Russia, yep. for example, sure. thereby uh, leading to all-out nuclear war. And it's only, it only hasn't happened because uh, one or two officials have disobeyed orders and refused to believe that, that this really is incoming missiles. And indeed, it turned out to be a flock of geese or malfunctioning equipment or the moon. Right. Or so that, uh, sooner or later, if we continue to have nuclear weapons ready to go off at the touch of a button, they will go off. Sooner or later, it will happen because some official will be in charge who obeys orders unthinkingly and destroys the world. Um, there are these other problems as well, like terrible... Yeah, we in my group, we call them the meta-crises that are intersecting yeah, across yeah. all of the different and domains. It's all a consequence. Yep. of solving this problem and not solving the second problem. Mm. So it has become a matter of absolutely crucial importance that we now you. have to begin to learn how to solve the second problem. Mm. Our, our continuing existence depends on it. And what that means is that we transform our institutions of learning mm. because this is social learning. This is community learning. And we can only do it if we have the right institutions of learning in our society, rationally designed to help us to learn how to make progress towards a more civilized world. And this is what at present we don't have because of the blunders of the Enlightenment that we've mm. still got built into our institutions, oh. into our universities. So a, a revolution in academia is of absolutely crucial importance. Mm. We need an Enlightenment 2.0 yeah. that opens our eyes to this kind of issue. Uh, and, and in this book of mine, I spell it all out. And I say, you know, what we need to do, why it needs to be done. Our government need, needs to, need to act. But governments are not going to act until populations, electorates, mm. say to their governments, if you don't do what needs to be done and organize the actions we need to perform, will kick you out of office. You mm. will lose the next general election, possibly never be elected ever again. So you bloody well better start acting or that's it. And, and, and gov governments tend, democratic governments in, de in democracies, do tend to listen to the threat right. of losing the next general election. <laughs> they really do listen to. Yeah. I, I, so, we, so we definitely need a movement of awakening around this issue yes, and initiate yes. the transformation in academia to address this foundational problem of civilization if we're going to make it into the back half of the 21st century and thrive. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's beautiful. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Nick. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, bringing your, like I said, your drive and your passion and this really lifelong vision and, and life work. Uh, that you've devoted. So thank you from one academic to another. I deeply appreciate your... Uh, I, 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 just one last word to spoil it all. Um, I did publish uh, this year an article that spells mm. out the work I've been doing for nearly 50 years. On, ah, on this okay. The, the, the success, the lack of success that I've had. Mm. Um, well... <laughs> how universities 
betray reason and humanity wow. to what's been about it. All right. And it's published online, so it's available for everyone free. Good. Well, we'll make sure we'll put the link in for that in relation. So, so it's, 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 it's widely accessible. Good. Good. All righty, friend. Well, I know you've started the Friends of Wisdom. We'll put some of that information uh, in this. I deeply appreciate your time and uh, your sharing this vision. It certainly resonated with my own journey uh, into trying to help people and then into knowledge and then backing up into, hey, what kind of architecture of understanding uh, is a feasible and what should we be cultivating uh, in our educational in uh, institutions? And we aren't doing it. Uh, you've seen how we might, uh, and I deeply appreciate that. So, uh, I'll bring this to a close, uh, th but thank you so much for your time, energy, and sharing your wisdom with us today. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed it. I, I hope it was okay. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and... Uh...